Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad that you have joined us. Before we get started with the show today, I just want to take a moment to recognize the historical significance of today. Uh, Judge Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson is going to begin her confirmation hearings in Washington in a little bit. She would be the first African-American woman confirmed to the nation's highest court. And what she talks about with uh, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee will not only be interesting and, I think, uh, incisive, uh, but also, again, really historic. Uh, you will be able to listen in to those hearings if you want to here on WDET. You're going to have to go to the website, though, and we're going to offer a stream embed there. Uh, the, we're not broadcasting those confirmation hearings live here, uh, but again, you will be able to go to the website and listen to the stream if you would like to. All right. Uh, our neighborhoods really shape us and they leave marks on our lives. They provide a particular perspective and a way of interacting with the world and appreciating specific symbols, narratives, and events. They nurture us and they surround us with teachers and caregivers and lovers. And sometimes they are even kind of punishing and restrictive, offering fewer opportunities for care. Of course, more often than not, they are a combination of all of these things. And we go through life trying to sort out, I think, the many different influences that come to us from the places that we're from. But regardless of the neighborhood you grew up in, success is often determined in America by how far you've moved away from it. That's especially true of poorer communities. So many of us grow up in places that we, as adults, want to say, hey, I got beyond where that was. I was able to escape, some people say. But is there an alternative to that narrative? Can we both remain in and reclaim our communities and be successful? And if so, how? This is a question that I've struggled with, with the neighborhood that I'm from here in the city of Detroit near Grand River and Livernois. I was gone from that neighborhood for three decades before I started really thinking about, hey, is there a way to still be part of this community, to still be lifting people in that community up, even though I've moved really far away and in various points of my life, left the city even. So to talk about that tension between leaving home and building connections with home, we have Majora Carter, who's author of Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. Majora Carter, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. So, as I said, the neighborhoods we grow up in shape us in really important ways, but poorer neighborhoods are often described as just one thing, something bad that we want to get 
away from. So I want to start here. I, 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 you are from the South Bronx, which is a neighborhood that has that kind of reputation in a lot of people's minds. But I want to give you a chance to talk about what it was like to grow up there. Sure. Um, and first of all, thank you so much for the introduction to the book. I, I don't even need to do anything now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm from the South Bronx and it was historically, you know, Latino, Black community, often known by, you know, what it isn't. You know, we are, we are the poorest congressional district in the country, or one of them anyway. And, you know, there were just sort of like a plethora of problems mm-hmm. to be solved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, what we've noticed is that billions of philanthropic and government dollars have gone here, yet we've remained economically stagnant. Um, I grew up during the era of the burning Bronx, literally when landlords were torching buildings mm. to collect insurance money. And, um, you know, and it was, that was during the 70s and the 80s, and we've still not really evolved from that, that stigma. But what, what I think and what I'm trying to, what if what I'm for to me is that it's about reclaiming your community because reclaiming here means we don't measure success by how far we get away from them. Mm. And as I said, that's a tension that a lot of us kind of struggle with. And um, I'm not sure that we come up with great answers uh, about how mm-hmm. to maintain those connections. So what does that look like in, in practical terms? Uh, a lot of people would say we should live in those neighborhoods, right, that we shouldn't leave them physically. But I think you're talking about something even more complex than that. Absolutely. Um, what I'm talking about is that you know, we borrowed the approach from the business world. It was essentially like a talent and as a community developed. Everyone loves the Cinderella stories that emerge from those places. But there's very little done to retain the talent. And it turns out that those Cinderella stories, sometimes called brain drains, were taught to measure success uh, by what we're, um, you know, by what we, what we measure our success by, which you can't find in that community. But it turns out people want the same thing that everyone else wants a lifestyle that makes them feel like cafes, where you meet other people and express them. So reclaiming is very is, is a recognizing that there's value in the marginalized can and should aspire to create a future that's economically and emotionally and spiritually meaningful to ourselves and that's for ourselves as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Majora Carter, author of Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. We're talking about how we stay connected to the places that we're from. How do we maintain those important ties to people and to place? And importantly, how do we lift up the places that we're from? So many of us here in Detroit are from places that really struggle, that were really struggling when we were coming up, uh, but continue to struggle today. And I think there is a constant question maybe in our minds about what our obligation is to those places and what our opportunity is. What are the ways that we can stay tied to those places? What are the ways that we can open up opportunities for other people to get away from those communities if they want uh, or to build better lives for themselves in those communities, which is the thing 
that I think all of us want. Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Uh, are you working to improve your community? Uh, did you happen to grow up in the community uh, where you live now? Uh, do you feel a particular tie to that home community and to the idea of trying to improve it? And what kinds of projects uh, do you work on in your community to make it better? How do you decide that uh, that home is an important place to lift up uh, as well as uh, where you may live now? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, I know that uh, this is a huge part of life here in Detroit, and so I'm really looking forward to hearing from people about their home communities, the places that you're from, the corner that you're from, which is so often how we describe uh, where we're from here in in uh, in Metro Detroit and especially in the city of Detroit. Uh, tell me about what that community was like. What was it like growing up there and how you stay connected to it if you do? Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Uh, Majora, uh, you moved away from the South Bronx for a time, and, and so many people do do that. Uh, what do you say to people who are trying to succeed by moving away? And tell us what it's like to go back after you have been away. Sure. I mean, it's you know, no one can blame anyone for wanting to seek greener pastures and to, you know, find success in, in some place where they don't feel like they're being fed. I mean, look, I was taught from a very early age, as were many of my peers, and I think in a lot of communities, like the ones I'm literally talking to through this book, is that you measure success by how far away, you know, you're talented in some way, shape, or form, and, you know, you should grow up and be somebody. And so when I actually did come back home, you know, to go to graduate school, I went to NYU. And, and since I was a broke college student, um, I, the cheapest place to stay was my parents' house. And it absolutely felt like a defeat. But then it was, but I'm so grateful that because I had some education and some distance, and I realized that there were real policies and you know, uh, regulations that systemic racism that literally created the kinds, the things in my community that made me and people like me want to vacate as soon as we could. And that's when I realized, why are we continuing to, to do this? We're treating poverty as if it's a cultural attribute, almost as if it's part of our DNA. And also, there are plenty of institutions that are doing quite well be, and benefiting off of the poverty, concentrating poverty. You know, it's a good game. For you know, developers you know who know how to work um, the, the the federal subsidies, the pharmaceutical industries who do really well because of the lifestyle related condition health conditions that are in our community, um, you know there's all of these things combined kind of create this atmosphere that again makes people feel as though they need to measure success by how far we get away. Mm -hmm. And so I understand that that's how people feel, but I also feel like it what we've done to our communities by continuing to sort of keep that example and perpetuate it is, is, is actually 
reducing and, and not helping us at all, you know, as, as, as communities, as people. And I think it's almost even like uh, one of the unintended consequences of in integration, in particular for black mm -hmm. communities, mm -hmm. <laughs> wherein, you know, people, because of legislation, we were able to move out of our communities. And so we were, prior to that, we were economically diverse, racially segregated, but economically diverse. And those you know, many of the folks that were actually making money owned property. When they left, that really helped to degrade kind of the social and economic fabric of those communities, leaving us vulnerable for the very particular uh, predatory speculation mm -hmm. that we see happening in our communities right now, which absolutely has a lot to do with the lack of generational wealth in our communities too. Because if we don't, if we don't see value in our own communities and we have property there, we'll sell it early and cheap. And yes, I'm not saying, believe me, I'm not <laughs> saying that, you know, years and years of historically discriminatory practices in banking don't have something to do with that. But in many of the instances that I know, like people are selling because they're receiving cash offers that um, seem like a good idea at the time because they don't see the value in their communities. Right. They don't see a future for mm -hmm. staying where they are. Absolutely. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, and you can go to social media as well. Big Neo on Twitter says, uh, I lived on Carlin near Schaefer and West Chicago, and it acted as a safe space for me in the mm -hmm. 1970s and 80s. I would hear about bad things, but it wasn't on my street. I credit a big mm -hmm. portion of that to the Black Fathers that were on my block as they looked out yeah. for us. That's such an important memory, yeah. and that idea of... Uh, I, and I can remember this also from being a kid here in Detroit. Uh, you, you would live in a neighborhood that other people would describe as bad or, or poor or whatever, but your experience there often didn't take in all of those bad mm -hmm. things. I mean, you lived in your house with your parents and your siblings, and uh, life in, in many cases was kind of shielded from some of those other, those other influences. Yeah, when I was growing up, I mean, and even as the neighborhood was literally burning around us, I mean, there were still, you know, parents, the, the sense of love and community in the neighborhood was real, yeah. right? You know, we, there were street games that we would play, Skelzy literally in the middle of the street, you know, jump rope, et cetera. And, and parent, we, parents definitely looked out for each other. However, it didn't displace the fact that we still saw it on the nightly news. You know, we were considered the poster child for urban blight. Mm -hmm. And it was an absolute dream for for families you know to try to get their kids out of those communities eventually yeah. i mean they made the best of it while they could and it's but it's sort of what i'm really trying to re remind people with this book is that yes even despite you know how horrible things may seem outwardly there's also always like a sense of community in those in those areas but it's often overshadowed you know by this whole idea that these communities inherently have no value yes. while we're in them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's what, we, that's what we've got to get through. Yeah, Big Neo, I really appreciate the, the comment and the memory on Twitter. Let's start on the phones here with Darren in Detroit. Darren, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks a lot, Stephen. I appreciate today's topic. Sure. Um, I'm a Detroit native, uh, graduated uh, from Cash Tech and then went on to an HBCU, Prairie View A&M University. Mm. One of the mm -hmm. things that um, I gathered um, in undergrad was this whole idea of self-determination, uh, mm. this idea of you build your community. 
So for mm-hmm. me, it was very important, especially graduating from that HBCU, to come back to the city of Detroit to build the city means uh, with my own children, with other people's children, wow. participate in coaching teams, uh, participate mm-hmm. in where we worship. That's just yeah. another sense of community. Um, mm-hmm. Our economics, it takes place in our community. This is where people grow up together. They get to know each other, and then they begin to do business. They begin to worship. They begin to uh, create um, not only businesses, but create institutions within our mm-hmm. community that uphold our community. So it's very critical that we come back to our community, not only uh, for people to see our community, uh, to see what goes on in our community. It's the pride, sort of mm-hmm. like Black Bottom and other uh, uh, black business districts, if you will, around the country, way mm-hmm. back in the 20s. That's something that, that should have never been disbanded. Sure. For whatever right. reason, whether it was an expressway or an attack on a community, where we, uh, our root, our core, exists in our community. So if that's mm-hmm. disbanded, if we move outwardly, then we don't have that so-called core anymore. Yeah, Darren, I really love, I really love the yep. things you're saying here in this call, and I love that that your experience uh, really has taught you that it's important. To be mm. here, to, to just yeah. to be here is is I think one of the things that uh, that we don't think uh, has enough value. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Majora, you know, one of the things that I was right. reminded of when Darren was talking is this idea of brain drain that we mm-hmm. that we suffer in in communities here in Detroit that the the, the people who would be best suited because of their mm-hmm. experiences to lift up a community where they're from often have to feel like they go somewhere else. And, yeah. and here it's it's uh, often other cities, not just other neighborhoods. They leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. that's a, that's one of the things that perpetuates those those conditions. Yes. No, Darren, that was an incredible example of exactly what a talent retention community development approach looks like. Like you are literally going back to where you're from, using your talents and support of a the folks within your own community, your mm-hmm. your friends, your family, and passing it on. And that the idea that you would take your talents and go someplace else is so common. I mean, again, it's a, it's a bit of a Cinderella story that I think Americans in particular love, you know, where you go to, you know, from a hard scrabble place and then you, you know, get an education or <laughs> something and then you take it someplace else and you suddenly you're like a big dog. And, and it's just like, why do we do that? I mean, if we looked at our communities as companies, you know, we would never mm. do that. Companies don't hire people, um, you know, to, and, you know, pour resources into them and benefits so that they go work for somebody else. But we do that, you know, in particular in our communities, like, like it's like, it's nobody's business and it's just understood that it's normal. And again, I think that's sort of like, it's, we're coming out of a legacy, you know, of, of white supremacy that essentially does tell us that our communities don't really matter, especially while we're in them. Mm-hmm. And so we, we behave accordingly like so much so that we will leave them when given an opportunity. <laughs> and again, that's, an, I think, an unintended consequence of integration. You know, we, we're stuck together because we're racially segregated, but if we have the means to move, we do. And unfortunately, but that, but like what Darren was talking about was just so beautifully said because mm-hmm. it's all about, like, how do I, like, literally pass this down, all the talents that I've got right now and use them? 
And I feel like I don't think that talent retention as a, as a community development strategy is going to solve either gentrification or even the idea that, you know, that concentrated poverty in, in our communities is, is, is okay. But what I do believe is that without it, we will not be able to progress yes. very much because the underlying problem is the lack of wealth creation and, and talent retention in those same communities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Darren, really appreciate the call. Uh, and you're sharing your story. Let's go next to Brad in Shelby. Brad, what's on your mind? Oh, I don't know. I moved out of my community um, in West Virginia when I was 17. I joined the Air Force. There's no jobs there. Kind of go mm-hmm. to where jobs are. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Brad, uh, that, that's a really common story, and it's a common story from the part of the world that that that, that you come from, which is. This idea that there is an opportunity there, and you have to go to someplace else to get that opportunity. And and Majora, that is, for a lot of us, what carries us away from home. Um, and it sounds to me like Brad hasn't found the way back. In other words, that uh, that opportunity leads you somewhere else. How do we how do we counter that? What's the what's the lever we pull? I guess to incentivize more people to stay in in the places where they're from because of work. Yeah, no, I've been inspired by folks uh, examples that I've seen around the country and I, I and, and yes in, in West Virginia um I, the, one of my dear old friends who passed away unfortunately Judy Bond was that it was seventh generation coal mine and family you know was, was hoping to do wind power uh community wind power before she passed. Um, not exactly sure where stuff like that is happening there right now, but you know. But again, but what I what I was stuck by is how you know trying to figure out like what can we do to create powerful and, and access within our own communities to economic and environmental and social well-being. And you know, one example that I that I used in my book was actually from Alaska, um, like probably even more rural than uh, where you're from in West Virginia, um, you know, in the Native American nation not there, the, the EAC uh, nation in particular, you know, is, is really working to, you know, their their culture, their economy based on, on, on fishing. Um, now they're actually realizing that kelp farming is something which has some tremendous commercial uh, capabilities in, in manufacturing. It's used in everything from, like, uh, beauty products down to uh, actually uh, – cow feed, you know, to reduce methane. Mm-hmm. And and so they're actively working to figure out ways so that there could be a native owned kelp farming mm-hmm. initiative, you know, going on up there that would actually employ lots and lots of people up there because their, um, you know, their unemployment rate is also incredibly high. But again, they're actively looking and working to find out, you know, where, what are, what are the economic growth trends and how can we you know, use what we have in our own communities and build businesses that, that are actually going to support us as, an, as, an, as a nation, as an economy, and locally. Yeah. And so I think that's also some of the things that, that, we, need to, that you, we have to consider doing. And it's building those local businesses that you know, allow dollars to circulate within the community and also you know, creating much larger ones that could also create better um, and reasonable, you know, opportunities for people to actually build real, you know, lives and careers and general racial wealth from them. Yeah, uh, I think we would be remiss in not talking at least a little about 
the racial dimension of all of this uh, and the black white okay. wealth gap and the experience that you had, you and your siblings uh, ended up selling your parents' home because you needed the money. And then, of course, at some point, the home became quite profitable for somebody else. That's another thing that that we see uh, in cities like Detroit all over the place, mm -hmm. the, the yeah. investment that African-Americans made in property um, didn't pay off the way it was supposed to. They sell and then somebody else is able to come in, usually uh, somebody of another race, and and get wealthy off of it. Uh, I mean, yeah. talk about that experience. Sure. And, and it wasn't so much that, I mean, look, they were happy to get, you know, some money out of the, the, the property my siblings was. My father bought our house in the 1940s for $15,000 in cash that he um, won at a, at a horse track in California. He was a Pullman porter, literally carried that money back in a satchel to New York, plunked it down in front of the, the Italian um, family that owned the house that he eventually bought. <laughs> and because he couldn't get a loan, he was a big old black man. Yeah. You know, this was the 1940s. It wasn't going to happen. So when both my parents passed, you know, in the early two or late in the early two thousands, um, I could none of my siblings saw the value in keeping our home hmm. because to them it was just like they thought it was cute that I was doing <laughs> this community <laughs> stuff, but they were just like, "No, we're moving to Jersey. We're moving down south. Whatever. We're we're out of here because there's really no value here." So the fact that anybody's offering us anything that's better than probably what it's worth. Yeah. And yeah. so, but I, but, but really what that meant is more, and yes, that, that house is actually worth at least three times more than what it was sold for. Yeah. And, but again, what it speaks to not is more so the fact that we're, we tend to, what the reason why predatory speculation works so well in this country is because we're often convinced that there's no value in our community while we're in it. Yeah. And so in that regard, we're, e we're it's very easy for predatory speculators to literally like make our assets show up on their balance sheets and then support their families as opposed to it being, you know, our opportunity to create generational wealth for our own. Yeah. And because once we lose that asset, generally we, most of us don't get it back. Yeah. And that's, that's a real problem yeah. that we have to acknowledge and, and, and really start thinking about it because the, the, Definitely, obviously, systemic racism, you know, historical issues around um, access to capital and, you know, historical dis discrimination and banking is real. It is very real. But one of the things that, that I've absolutely noticed is how quickly, you know, many folks in our communities will, will sell because we don't know the value of our own homes, even if we own them outright. And then that is something that we, that we need to address as a community so that we're sharing this kind of information with each other so that we don't, so that we don't like make the mistake of literally having our children's legacy, you know, handed over to somebody else's family. Wow. Wow. Okay. Majora Carter, author of Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. It was really great to have you here with us. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Coming up next. We're going to talk with Jazz Fest President and Artistic Director Chris Collins about what that event will look like this year. It's been virtual the last two years. Are we finally going to return? 
to that wonderful in-person experience of the Jazz Fest in the middle of downtown Detroit. Find out next on Detroit Today. Thanks for tuning in. If you listen to this show or you know me at all, you know how excited I get each year for the Detroit Jazz Festival. It's not just the music and the artists and the showmanship of the whole thing. It's this real sense of community, I think, that comes out of the Jazz Fest. It's a place that I run into people that I don't sometimes see the rest of the year and you sit with people from all over Metro Detroit, all over from the country, all over the world, right here in downtown Detroit, really enjoying all of the acts. For the last two years, of course, uh, it is uh, an event that has had to be virtual because of the pandemic. Uh, But now plans are taking shape for what the festival is going to look like this year. Are we going to go back to that wonderful sense of community and fun at the Detroit Jazz Festival? Is it safe for us to do it the way we used to do it? Here to talk about all of the things in play around those questions is the festival's president and artistic director, Chris Collins. Chris, welcome back to Detroit Today. Uh, thanks for having me, Stephen. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So what can you tell us at this point about what you expect this year's Jazz Fest to look like. Well, I can tell everyone that the 2022 Detroit Jazz Festival, once again, thank goodness, uh, our presenting sponsor, Rocket Mortgage, will be Labor Day weekend as planned, four days, Friday through Monday, the second through the fifth. And uh, it's going to be um, it's going to be quite special. And imagine if we took the wonderful in-person festival that typically draws 325,000 or so people to our great city and uh, combine that with what we've been doing the last couple of years, which is uh, extending this free jazz for everyone experience to the world mm-hmm. through broadcast technology. And so that's exactly what we're going to be doing more than ever before. So we're going to have a companion broadcast that'll be free to the world in a bunch of different formats and a bunch of different uh, venues that'll allow our global audience, which as I think you and I have discussed before in 2020, we hit nearly a million unique viewers. And in 2021, to my my surprise, I had them check the metrics three times, <laughs> nearly two and a half million people in about 46 countries around the globe. So we thought, hey, let's let's do something for everyone live in person, the way that we all know this music should be heard. But let's stay in touch with this incredible global audience we've developed that now is loving Detroit, seeing what Detroit's about, understanding our legacy and then loving the music right alongside us through a companion broadcast. It's going to make it pretty unique. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's an important point to to emphasize, which is that uh, no one wanted the pandemic to happen, of course, and we've all suffered through it uh, in, in many ways. But there are some things that came out of it that, uh, that, that were better than what we had before in the Jazz Fest is one of them. This, this online uh, portion of it, as you say, gets, it gets the content to way more people 
and the idea that you could combine the live aspect of it with this online. I mean, it, it, this, this could be the biggest festival ever. Well, I tell you, I, thanks for saying all that. I, we really believe we've we've found a uh, interesting place in the digital uh, format for what we do. I mean, we have two really amazing uh, things in our corner. One is that, you know, the Detroit Jazz Festival for 43 years has been completely free. So we're not ticket dependent, which gives us a lot more flexibility. And it certainly aided us in 20 and 21 to do what we did. Uh, and and also the second thing is for a number of years, six or seven years now, you know, I, I, I got a grant some years ago and we put that all into developing the architecture and the software and the all the networks with, um, with yourself at WDET and with our public television and, and with online settings to um, be able to live stream all four stages in real time. And because we had that in place, we were able to build 20 and 21 on that. And now we go a step further to make sure that yes, you can you can watch it all on our on our app, Detroit Jazz Fest Live, which you get at App Store and Google Play. But there'll also be a companion broadcast in in television and, and public radio settings. It'll be online in a bunch of different venues. So people all around the world, as we experienced in 2021 and 20, uh, 2020 and 2021, will be able to be part of our audience. Yes not in person, which we all know is the best, but uh, we still have that option. And we have a lot of people that watched in 2021 that wrote us and said, <laughs> I'm in Australia. I've never been to Detroit, but man, I'm coming to the jazz festival next year. Wow. So wow. it all, it all feeds on itself. And it, it as you said, it's uh, one of those uh, wonderful benefits that um, uh, because of the skill and the craftsmen we have in the city, along with the great artists, uh, we, we, we nurtured what was a challenging situation to something that is really a, a whole other dimension of activity for us. Mm -hmm. I'm talking with Chris Collins. He's president and artistic director of the Detroit Jazz Festival. We're talking about Jazz Fest 2022 here in the city of Detroit, uh, the the first in-person jazz fest, at least that's the plan right now, in a few years because of the pandemic, uh, what uh, what that will mean in terms of uh, audience and, and connection and all of those things that we really cherish about the festival. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, share some of your favorite Detroit Jazz Fest memories. Uh, did you tune in last year and the year before when it was – all virtual. Uh, if so, what did you think of that format? Is uh, that something that you will stick with maybe this year and maybe mix in with uh, coming downtown to see it all live? Uh, also, give us a sense of what you're doing with the whole live music thing. Live music is back, not just yeah. here in Detroit, but all over the country. Are you are you comfortable going back to it? Are you tell us what concerts? Uh, you're going to what the experiences have been like uh, so far. 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there or to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Chris, I wonder what you make of this return of live music and what it means to jazz, like how important that is to the state of jazz here in, in, in 2022? Well, it's, it's very important. You know, jazz music is a communicative 
uh, art form, not only on the bandstand, but between the artists and, and the audience, the artists and the venue, mm -hmm. the sound system, everything plays into it. And I think it's what makes Detroit Jazz Fest uh, really special, uh, why the artists love to play here. We have great audiences, highly diverse audiences, and we have, uh, you know, you're outside in the summer uh, weather and with great sound systems, great technicians, and it makes uh, makes you want to be at your best. But as we all know, I mean, may, you know, maybe the best place to hear jazz is in a small club where you're up close and personal and you're hearing every acoustic element of everyone's sound. Well, we've tried our best to, you know, bring that onto the big stage so we really can deliver this to hundreds of thousands of people with, with that same intimacy and connectivity of a live in-person festival. So then you think about, okay, how do you bring that to the online and broadcast environment? Well, you know, la last year we upped everything to high definition audio and video. We did things on television, radio, and online. So even if people didn't have Wi-Fi connection, they could listen on the radio, they could follow along on their public television. You know, th these are all ways of making sure we extend our mission to not only produce great jazz, forward-looking jazz, jazz of all generations and cultures, but deliver it to everyone, invite everyone to the party and clear those barriers that would keep them from joining us. And that's really the key. Yeah. Okay, so in a couple weeks... You are going to announce this year's Artist in Residence, and that is one of my favorite things about uh, the Jazz <laughs> Fest. I know you're not ready to say yet who it is, but can you give us any clues or hints hmm. about who that might be or what kind of artist? Yes, well, I, I, you know, as always, the Artist Resident Program is so important. Multiple performances of different, like completely different things at the festival. And and uh, the Artist Residents will also be part of our April 30th press preview event live from Detroit. And uh, that's uh, 6 to 8 p.m. on April 30th, which is International Jazz Day. We're doing a youth event all during the day that day with EPSCD students. And, um, and then 6 to 8 p.m. we have our press preview. So we'll be announcing the entire lineup. And we'll be bringing uh, bringing out our artist residents to perform live for everyone at that event. But we will be announcing that artist residence the first week of April. And I will just say that you know, in the world we live in, uh, and coming out to uh, the first in-person Detroit Jazz Festival in a few years, you know, we I spent a lot of time. I had a lot of time, like everybody, <laughs> to <laughs> contemplate where where to go. And you know, we want to keep being daring. We want to be dynamic and fresh. We want to be reflective and celebrate the legacies, but also always be looking and, and supporting and celebrating those new artists that come up and doing all that with our, with a, with a, a keen eye to our global audience. Mm -hmm. So while we have a lot of great Detroit artists and, and we have um, a lot of American artists, we'll also have artists from around the world, from uh, all kinds of surprising places through our international exchange programs and just me looking around all over the place for some of these great voices, new and old, um, throughout the world. And so that uh, that will give quite, I think, an engaging and exciting lineup that people will hope will certainly be thrilled to hear about. And when they hear it in action, they're going to hear some new stuff, some stuff maybe they've never even heard before, and some new combinations. And quite frankly, I can tell you with the artist residents, some old combinations that haven't been heard in a very long time. Mm, yeah. Okay. Uh, Chris Collins, president and artistic director 
of the Detroit Jazz Festival. It's always great to talk to you, and I am so excited for Jazz Fest 2022. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'll talk uh, before we get there, but uh, thanks so much for getting uh, with us here on Detroit Today. The, the pleasure is mine, and people need to see you talk about the Jazz Fest because you're. It's. It, I feel like it's Christmas morning. We got our pajamas on, and we're opening presents now. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to talk to a doctor about the history of single payer health care in this country and why the medical establishment may be changing its tune. Are we going to have some sort of universal? healthcare system in America before we know it. Great conversation up next uh, tomorrow on Detroit Today.